Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Alex Clapham. Alex, a big warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, as we discussed previously, yeah, massive fan of your work and uh, yeah, finally, finally found a window to get myself on here. So yeah, looking forward to it. I appreciate uh, the kind words. I never thought my wildest years a few years back to be a Canyon football and lowdown crossover, but here we are anyways, Alex. Um, yeah. As you know, on this show, we bring it back to the very start. And with that being said, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Yeah, mine will be Euro 96. So maybe showing my age there to some of the some of the younger listeners. But no, Euro 96 and it's going to be uh, Gaza against Scotland. That's my first real memory. So I just turned seven. So that's when I, I really started to see the impact that and sort of effect that the game has on people. I remember people out in the streets where I were watching the game. And yeah, that's when I really thought, wow, what is this that everybody's losing their mind about? Obviously, I'd heard of it and seen people playing it, but I never really, really, really realised yeah, how much of an impact, how big it can be. So it went from there. And then, yeah, I got taken to see my local team, Sheffield United, um, through the late 90s and then 2000s. We ended up going to quite a few games home and away. Um, so yeah, it starts at, starts at Euro 96 for me. And how early did the coaching bug come into play? Coaching? Yeah, yeah. so uh, I've been coaching now since... Two, I started at college, so 2008, and then my first real coaching job was in was in America, and I went over in 2009. Um, originally just as a, as a summer camp, but I ended up meeting a, meeting a guy out there, a Portuguese guy, um, and he had his own sort of football camps and football academy there. Um, and we just clicked personality-wise, football philosophy-wise, coaching-wise. Um, and, yeah, we just clicked and ended up working with him, living in his, in his basement for a while uh, while I was there in the States. And then, um, yeah, that, that sort of coincided with the same time that Guardiola's Barcelona team was taking over the world. So that, again, opened my eyes to something completely new from... I'd grown up around around um, Northern England watching Sheffield United and a lot of Neil Warnock's teams. Um, so, yeah, it was it was something completely different. And that's when I started to see, OK, maybe this is a time where I hang up my boots from playing and I want to go into studying something new, which yeah ended up uh, leading into having to learn a language to go and study a completely different way of playing, coaching, seeing and feeling the game. An amazing one because and and take this as a compliment in research for our previous conversation and today's podcast too, Alex. It's been interesting to go through your career with a fine two comb and see it, it's been tough to kind of pick out a discernible trend. But the one thing I'd have to say is you've been pretty good at repeatedly and continually having your worldview of the game challenged. And I think with all credit to yourself that began at an early age, those summers abroad, taking the likes of US and Mexico before coming to Spain. I mean, what, sh what shouted out to you at that time, leaving the north of England to spend those summers in the US and Mexico? Was it something you always knew that you wanted to do or was it just a case of reckoning? Uh, yeah, again, a lot of credit. I've got to go back to, yeah, I Listen, I realise I'm not going to be able to play to make a serious living. Um, I realised I wasn't good enough. Um, so that's when I started to think, OK, maybe, I'm, well, I love the game. I know I want to be involved in so, in football in some capacity. So I ended up going out to the States. And it was there when, when again, I have to, I have to um, credit my, my, my Portuguese um, sort of colleague there. He introduced me to a completely new way of seeing the game. And I remember he had, he had the kids lined up at the bottom of a grass bank before the session and I thought okay here we go this looks like something that I'd have done as a kid where we're running up and down the grass to get fit running up and down the banking but it wasn't that it then took everybody's everybody got their shoes and socks took off and they were looking for the different sweet spots and techniques on how to how to caress the ball how to volley the ball and that's yeah that's that's when it really sort of opened my eyes to okay wow there's so much more detail to to what I've seen or heard in my childhood growing up um, and it came from there and then as I said before it coincided with with Guardiola's team, um, and then yeah, that that led itself into the Spain national team conquering um, on the European stage and the world stage, and that's just when it really sort of made me think, wow, there's there's a complete different world out there, um, and I want I want to go and find out as much as I can about it, and so yeah, so for me, it, it became a case of luckily enough the Portuguese guy again, 
I'll put I'll put his name out. He's an older boy now, so I don't know if he does podcasting or what have you, but he's a Xiao Amaral. This is his name, and he's up in the northeast, and he has his own. He's still going with his private his private sort of so- soccer camps there. Um, but yeah, he was also a language teacher. That was his full time job, so he was fluent in obviously Portuguese, English, but then he could speak Dutch, Spanish, German, different languages. So again, through him. I, uh, I lent on him a lot for the different language skills and um, yeah, he, he taught me a lot football wise and then how to open my mind up to try and learn a new language and how they can also, the Latin languages can relate to one another. Um, so yeah, that's when I went through there uh, and luckily enough, a job came up after a few years in, in the States, a job came up in in Mexico and I, and I saw it as an opportunity to go out there and learn as much as possible in the language whilst coaching as well. So in the mornings I was in university doing Spanish classes. Um, and then in the evenings, I'd go and coach. So I was doing three hours a day Spanish classes. Then I was able to go and put it into practice in the evening. Um, so yeah, from there, a role came up just as an English teacher in a school in Barcelona. Um, so I went over in 2014. Uh, and yeah, once you're there and in Spain, and especially Catalonia, they have such a taste and such a flavour for, for the game that everybody knows everybody. And... Everybody knows somebody who's in the game, coaching, analysing, playing, uh, refereeing, whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, after a week of being there, I was involved with the school team and then into a into a local team. And it, and it sort of grew and developed from there onto my onto my courses. It's amazing, though, to kind of when you're reflecting back, speaking about, you know, the hunger and the passion that you had installed in you, the foresight at the time to decide, you know what, this is the path that I'm going to be embarking on. And to have that day one mentality repeatedly, which you honed throughout your career, I think it was no too pro- no so not as much prominent as it was back in the time at Spain, where it's very much the beginner's mindset. And I know listening to you in previous podcasts before and speaking amongst ourselves, you know, it was quite a time of reckoning for yourself because there's an awful lot of lessons ascertained as to how you even got on UEFA-B, the very origins of Canyo football you know, at the time in Barcelona, teaching to make ends meet, which all kind of, to me, Alex, and everyone listening, show in clear high definition that there is a stark reality of the path you want to go on if you want to kind of succeed in this game of football. That's it. There's a lot of sacrifices, and especially, um, as we spoke before, if you've not had a professional career and you've not, you're not, you've not got a name, you're, you're, you're more or less a nobody in the game. Yeah, you've got to pave your way, and that means a lot of, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of times, yeah, I was living living in Spain and I was, yeah, I was completely broke, um, scrambling together whatever I could to just to get to sessions, which were, yeah, I was volunteering at sessions and then coach, uh, sorry, teaching English throughout the day for, for a pittance, really. Um, so, yeah, it was um, a lot of sacrifice. Um, obviously, missed family, uh, missed friends, missed home. Even even going, I know I spoke about it before. Even going to see Sheffield United, I missed it so much when I was away. Um, but yeah, no, you you do what you have to do, and it's just, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not. I don't think I'm so rare or uncommon in doing that. There's so many people out there that do have to sacrifice and go through, you know, a lot of uncomfortable situations where, yeah, they have to choose, um, to suffer rather than going. You know, there's probably big better roles and more an easier way of living for sure where they can have a comfortable job and that was one for me because I remember after what have I done 9 10 11 12 and 2014 in the states so I'd had a few years in the states and I was in a I was in a position in a situation where I'd made enough uh relationships and contacts and not reputation but earned enough respect there where I could go and have a full-time role and live you know, as as we, I know, you you've spent time in the states as well. It's uh, you, you can be uh, you can live quite a nice, comfortable life there, and that was an opportunity for me then. And I and I've got friends who were who I went out with originally and spent time with there, and they've ended up living there, married there, working full time, living an incredible life. But something was just calling calling me from Catalonia at the time, um, and that's when, yeah. W- you know, when you're in a full-time role and you've got your own teams in, in America and you've still got that calling, yeah, but what about, what about if you don't take a chance? What about if you don't do this, don't do that? And uh, yeah, I went over there and even when friends from the States did come over and, and and visit and did come over and spend time with me, they were saying, I can't believe you live like this. I, I, like you've not eaten pr- a proper meal in a week. You've not, you know, you've not really slept in a bed. Like I said before, I was, uh, 
yeah, there was, there was times when I was renting just just a bed on the end of uh, a friend's living room and I'd just be sleeping on his floor or sleeping on his settee, paying him whatever I could just to get by, just to be in the country and learn. Um, but yeah, that fell hand in hand with uh, Luis Enrique's time at Barcelona. So I was lucky enough to to be able to make um, contacts within the club as well and go in and watch academy sessions. So I was learning a lot there. Um, so yeah, so when I whenever I had any free time, I'd be I'd be watching sessions, as you know, around certainly around Barcelona and the Catalonia area, especially there's a there's a session going on on every street corner. There's something going on, and yeah, listen, the level and standard and detail that coaches are are sort of going into there, you can learn so much from even from watching a a grassroots under eights, under nines, under tens team. You can see, you can hear and see so much detail and learn so much on. Uh, session organization and preparation and even methodological um aspects from from coaches there so yeah that's where i wanted to be and uh did whatever i could to make it happen and as someone who's definitely influenced by i would say a whole range of external influences growing up foreign influences no spanish mythology was always was always in your line of thinking even back in england and being in the u.s Consequently, do you believe that if coaches are going to follow a similar path, you know, that nature versus nurture debate, it's not just enough to kind of read about it and study it. It's another question altogether, Alex, isn't it? Kind of going there, living there, embodying it, experiencing it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I remember getting out there and everything was completely different to anything I'd witnessed before. So uh, I went in and and and... As I said, I went in and uh, sort of viewed sessions and observed sessions. And there was a guy who'd been coaching at Barcelona Academy in La Masia for a good few years. And then and then he, he left the club and he was out as a head coach of an under-14s yeah, under team on the outskirts of Barcelona. And I was watching his session. I remember thinking, well, he stood and talked to him for 11 minutes before anybody's kicked a ball. Um that failure straight away on, on any of the courses that I'd been on in England. And this is, again, I'm talking about a coach who's been in and come out of, you know, football club Barcelona. So that's when I realised, okay, the people, um, when, and when I say people, I mean coaches, kids, parents, they're all completely different on socially. Um, and yeah, I've, that's something where I knew I had to sort of take, take, a, take a back seat and uh, yeah, just just realised that I'm here to watch and learn for quite a while, and I did a lot of that. Again, my I, yeah, I'd done my mornings in Mexico, but my language, the Spanish language skills, were not not nowhere near strong enough to lead and manage and direct a session. Um, so I was assisting um, a lot of the time and picking up as much as I can like that. But I realised very quickly that yeah, I just need to take a backseat here and just listen and learn and. Yeah, it's um, again when I come back now, when I come back to England and I see youth sessions, it, it, it makes me flip back the other way and I think, wow, this if they did this in Spain, the, the Spanish would be thinking, why are they doing that? Why are they doing that? Why are they, why are they doing that? They're just letting it go. They're just, and that and that's that's cultures as well. And that's something that you, again, you have to you have to be open to. And luckily enough, it was uh, it was something that I got to 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 experience and open my, my mind and my eyes to. It's amazing, too, to kind of have that awareness at the time, Alex, because, indeed, you shape your own experiences and your experiences shape you. And it's something that we speak about often as seeing football as a means of expression. And it's typically indicative of the Latin cultures, which you've subsequently worked in, not only Mexico, Spain, but also Italy and Brazil. Yeah, massively, massively. Um, yeah, it's ma- the, the as far as cultures go, as I said, the the coach I was I was speaking about in question there. I remember, like I said, the first eleven minutes he was chatting to the group about about the game at the weekend, and then he sent them all to do I think three or four laps of the pitch, and then they're all stood in lines passing balls backwards and forwards in groups of two. And I thought that I'd, I'd get slaughtered on my FA level one or FA level two doing any of these things. They'd kill me. Everything's everything's backwards here. But yeah, that's something that, like you mentioned, there it's. Once you've been and done it once and been outside your comfort zone and realised actually there is a, a different way to do this, um, then, yeah, I think it sort of comes easier in the next roles, whether it be, you know, Mexico to Spain to to Brazil or Italy, wherever it may be, you start to realise, yeah, this is completely different. And that can be away from football, even sat in a restaurant. You can sit you can sit next to or on the table across from 
completely different culture and you, you realize within you know seconds that wow just the way they communicate or or don't communicate or how they sit or how they how they use their mannerisms you know you start that's when you start to realize yeah they're completely different to us but yeah like i said once you've done it once you're you're sort of open to 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 take it on living in so many different places alex did you ever find it tough to adapt to the culture uh i think a big part of finding it tough is usually yeah the language barrier um and that's that's why i didn't want to go into spain blind as with regards to the language so um yeah when i for the first country i lived in where i didn't speak the language was mexico but luckily i was living with and working with um other british cultures um it was, it was like a british it was like a football school where the kids came to also learn english um even though i used it to to improve my spanish and i'd question i'd try and improve um quiz the kids on stuff in english and then we i whatever we did in english we'd do it in spanish after so i could learn as well um but yeah i think a big a big barrier there is then the language but to learn a language you have to learn the culture and but to learn the culture you have to learn the language they all fall hand in hand um and yeah that could be with regards to terminology or different words within coaching or or football and yeah if you if you translate it literally a lot of the times it won't make sense just won't make sense at all um so again like i said you have to sort of understand all the saying that because the mentality and mindset is completely different to to what it is in, in english-speaking countries and um, certainly around football um I remember we spoke a couple of weeks ago and we spoke about the an article that we both read and it was about the, the linguistics in football and how in Latin languages, so be it Portuguese, Italian, Spanish or whatever, a lot of the football terminology is feminine. So then they're already thinking in certain a certain way. Whereas again, when when I, I know when I grew up here, and I'm guessing where you grew up, a lot of it was, yeah, win your jewels, don't shirk a tackle, make sure you get stuck in, do not lose a race it was a lot of that was it was around the, the physical aspects of the game whereas yeah certainly in spain um, and definitely brazil um, a lot of it is technical and tactical aspects rather than the physicality side i think it's like where it's nice to on the field stuff because you know it's something we spoke about before the positionism versus relationism debate and if you were to really water it down to its very essence you have one school position a school that's very much top down and the relationism school that is very much bottom up when in reality it's kind of there's a messy middle in between and I know that's the messy middle that you kind of place yourself at the edge of that continuum of being steeped in you know the Spanish coaching badges and all the methodological steps as opposed to the relation at school that I know we go back and forth on a good bit and echoing from your time of Vasco de Gama in Brazil so where would you say you sit on that continuum Alex? I sit wherever I'm working so like you said then when I'm in Brazil I have to understand that yeah it's going to look something a lot closer to what we call relationism so yeah I think football's about feeling and it's about emotion and yeah we we want to try and control what we can but in the end the players play the game we're only there to to really facilitate um and while it's a sport that's played you can you can you can attack, you can defend in any direction within a 360 degree radius. There's no real uh, time limit that you have to attack in. If you think about um, basketball um, and then and then obviously tennis, you know, you can only really stay in your half of the, of the court or the pitch. None of these things really apply to football. So we have to be understanding that, yeah, it's the players playing the game and we, we can try and guide them and say okay but what about this this and this but in the end the, the players have to feel it and see it and smell it before it's happened um and like you said there when i'm when i'm in brazil yeah i remember the first session and i'd, I'd yeah I'd, I'd arrived the day before gone to the hotel didn't really sleep much got up went to the morning session and the first thing they did we all did a introduction and then they, they went out into a, an unopposed passing pattern and the ball was switched out to the right back. And before any, before he even thought, he came inside. So it was not like an interception, but he didn't let the ball arrive to him. He, he ran inside and flicked a pass with the outside of his foot over a mannequin into the winger straight down the line. And that's 
that sort of really opened my eyes to, okay, yeah, this is completely different. That's not something that you really see in Europe. It was like a, a flicked back heel pass that's cut out a mannequin. And yeah, everybody, everybody was obviously uh, quite excited about it. And I remember thinking they'd absolutely kill him anywhere else I've been in the world. They'd absolutely kill him and slaughter him for why are you doing that? Why are you cutting inside? Let the ball do the dis let the ball do the work. Uh, the ball's faster than any player. Um, but no, that's when I realised there he's going to come inside, he's going to try and join in. And then, yeah, I need, again, that was another experience where I had to sort of just watch and listen a lot and then help out wherever I could. But luckily, um, set pieces where I were working there, um, you know, they're quite concrete, they're quite black and white, especially when you're defending. Um, something that I learned, and it's, it's took me to be fair, three weeks in Brazil to realise... Yeah, I need to completely change my approach with how I'm working with these players. And I know we spoke like a couple of weeks ago about it. And um, yeah, there were players there who they didn't even speak Portuguese. So even when some of the players were speaking Portuguese to them, they couldn't really communicate because they came from uh, a favela where, where there's only sort of a dialect or um, a language. Or to me, it sounded only like sounds um, from, from the Portuguese that I'd studied. Um, but they were making sounds with their mouth and this is how they communicated. So, yeah, for me to go and sort of speak to those players and say, okay, when this player holds up two hands in a cross like this, you need to be able to go and block this zonal player or you need to step behind the goalkeeper. And I realised after three games, yeah, I need to completely change my approach here and let the players run it with how they feel. And that's where the success came. And I think in the last... What did I have? Seven, seven games there. I think in the last four games, we scored something like five set pieces, something like that. And a lot of it was working out which players can take on um, sort of order and direction and organisation positionally. And then which ones just have a smell and a feeling that I can't, I can't coach. So typically the ones that would have the smell and the feeling would be the ones that would go out and get on the ball in wide areas, whether it's a free kick or a throwing or a corner. Um, and then from there, we'd start to talk about zones and areas where the finishers would arrive. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting challenge and, and complete education for myself going out there. Um, so yeah, um, a long answer to that question, but it depends where you're coaching. It's a very interesting one. And the way you were speaking about them there, I thought for a second you were from Sheffield, the way they were speaking. But anyways... <laughs> <laughs> Taking you back to the very start about that, you said uh, football is about feeling. And it's something I've been thinking about an awful lot recently, you know, the limits of perception. Um, not only perception in of itself, but how we define the word. And, you know, when I say perception to you, it could mean one thing, but conventionally, it's what we see. But, you know, it's not only what we see, of course, it's about what we taste, what we smell, what we feel. And that necessitates two things. One, being very open to the ground in which you occupy and two, embracing the uniqueness of the ground itself. And I think it's that hearty combination between both, Alex, that makes football special, no matter where you go across the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and again, that, that that's with everything you do. That's not only football, you know, especially when you're working in different cultures and you're around uh, people and humans from different cultures that's that's something that you have to take on again the, a lot of people say your first impression is the most important but you don't know you don't know what what people's first impressions are especially when you're going into different cultures and different different sort of um, mindsets and mentalities certainly around football um, but again I remember going in and I, and I used Brazil again and I went in and in the first three weeks they were in what they were calling a crisis because in the Serie B in Brazil, it was, it was the top four go up automatic. There's no playoffs. Um, it's top four up automatic and they were fourth, but I think they were level on points with fifth. Um, for that club, Vasco da Gama to not go up was, yeah, it was going to, they were calling it a crisis. So I went in and, went, and I, there was a lot of pressure brought on me. You know, they'd flown me over. They put me in a hotel and they said, yeah, we need to get better at set pieces, both attacking and defending. Um, and I went in and I was sort of, not like a bulldozer or all guns blazing, but I knew that I need to be quite uh, command coaching and, and sort of, okay, you need to be able to do this, this and this. If you can't do this, then we need to find another player to do it. And, I, and it just didn't fit with their style of life or their style of feeling or, as you said, their perception of the game. Um, and again, 
that's something that I had to learn. And it took, and luckily it only took me three weeks, but at the same time, three weeks in football can be somebody's job on the line. Um, but luckily we, we managed to work it out. Um, but again, yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's, that's something that, yeah, you have to take it into consideration. Again, perception going from Brazil across to Italy, the perceptions of people, the perceptions of football, especially English football and what an English person in football may bring or may bring. Yeah, it's completely different. And it's something that you have to work on. And again, you in the end, you're only working with people. You're only working with humans. So there's no, I know I spoke the other week, um, and we was we were speaking about what what's it like coaching an Italian? What's it like coaching a Brazilian? Com- every individual is completely different. Again, I got and I'm going back to Vasco again. There were players there who played in Europe. Some had been in Ukraine, Russia. Some had been played in in La Liga in Spain. Some had played Premier League. Um, and people that have played in Europe and in those sort of systems and the structures are completely different and have a complete perspective. Um, and a completely different perception of of football and how it should look, and um, yeah, it's something that we need to take into consideration for sure. It's it's fascinating too because you know there is a feeling there football can't be boxed, and you know football is full of simple people that lead complex lives when it comes to the sport. You know, thereby it was absolutely fascinating. You know, you tweeted out the clip of Michelle speaking about his Girona side a few eight days ago and it was space mm-hmm. plus time plus emotion as the caption and I think that is in of its essence the beauty of football when it's force applied when you have an idea that you can magnify down and you know full way of through that the coach is getting his ideas through to players just by clear and full dedication to the application of the process but that necessitates you know Alex the transition of a coach nowadays he's not only just that set piece coaches who spoke about going in there giving the instruction, but it's all about mm. the how in the delivery. It's nearly like you're a psychologist or emotionalizing with all the players, all the coaching staff. Absolutely. And and with when you when when you speak there, I thought about the courses. And I remember when I went to Spain and um I turned up on the first day of the UEFA B and I had my, you know, my whistle, my boots, my tactics board, and I'm like, okay, what's first? And they said, no, 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 no. They said, you don't need any of those things for a good few weeks. Before you go anywhere near the grass, let's start thinking about people and how people learn and how different ways of teaching to different ways of learning can have different effects. Um, So I remember for the first two weeks of the course, and this is an intensive course. We're in there in the morning all the way through the afternoon. And uh, the first two weeks were pedagogy. And yeah, it was just completely blew my mind, especially especially because it was in a different language as well. But yeah, the different ways of learning and the the pyramid of learning, and and then it went from there sort of into sociology. And that's I remember at the time I was thinking, but what are we doing? But what about tactics? What about you know? Come, what if we have uh, two pivots? And what about if we want to play out from into out and get back out to the left winger? No, no, they said you need to learn how to work with people and how to teach people because in the end, we are just teachers. You know, we are we are facilitating talent, whether it be academy football, whether it be first team, Champions League team, it's 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 we're facilitating the talent of other people. And yeah, that's something that I needed to to understand. And I think it's key as well because again, you see, I won't name names, but so many top players come straight out of playing into a good job. And you realise it's something that's, they're two completely different beasts, two completely different monsters. It's playing is so different. I was only speaking last night to a coach and he was saying um, that he'd had a Premier League, a player who played all his career in the Premier and he wanted to do some youth coaching. Um, And he's saying, okay, yeah, no problem. You can do this, do do that with us and we'll do these hours. And he said, I was talking to him about the the area size of his session and he didn't understand why the difference of sort of three yards or three three sort of steps between two cones could make a massive difference to the session. And why if you move that, then you have to learn that, okay, the timings have to be different or this player might not want to play in that area there because uh, it doesn't work well in a relationship or socially with this player. Um, 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that goes far beyond just the just the X's and the O's, as they say. Doing the UEFA B in Spain, it caused a major shift in your perception of the world at the time and subsequently worldview. Has that happened to you many times in football since? Yeah, massively, massively. Uh, so many times as well. Um, even going from working up in Catalonia to to going down and working uh, with Getafe down in Madrid, the the two cultures are so different, completely different. And you know, we're talking about two major cities in the same country. The the cultures there are completely different. And then I jump from there to to um, Brazil or Italy. There, there's two cultures there that are so completely different. And you know, there's the way that people learn there are so so different. And again, yeah, I can speak about players in Brazil who. who they grew up not not having any education, not having to be anywhere at any time. So there's kids there who don't need to tell their time and their parents have never known how to tell their time, never needed to know how to tell their time. So again, I'm working with players there who my job depends on them getting results. Um, their job depends on them getting good results. And I'm trying to work with these these players and in a way where there's pressure and try to know that they need to learn how to learn which is is something in itself there the the pedagogy pedagogy side of that so now listen it's uh, it's been something that the the more i travel the more the more the more my mind opens to that as well it's just fascinating when you speak of the traveling piece the time in brazil to harp on and, and <laughs> another time because you know people don't understand the weight of that club vasco de gama and you know, the pressure that was on that season to achieve results. And it was interesting listening to you on Gary's podcast recently. I mean, you brought it up that uh, the training ground became like a scene from the city of God with tens or hundreds of kids, if not from the favelas, you know, standing yeah. on roofs, sitting on roofs, watching you train and whatnot. I'd imagine it's yeah. quite a hasty environment for a set-piece coach to be going into, Alex, where the pressure's on the next game. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I said, they used to sit on the walls all the way around the uh, around the training ground. Um, so yeah, they were they were they were shouting at every every misplaced pass and you know every every mistake. They were on top of it. But yeah, listen, the the atmosphere inside that stadium at Vasco is like something that I've never ever experienced before, and I don't think I ever will again. Um, I remember my first game, we drew one one. The striker missed a 1v1 late on to make it 2-1. And um, we had to be escorted out of the, sta the stadium by the army after the game uh, because of our own fans. Um, and I won't translate what they were singing to him, but it wasn't very nice what they were singing to him. So yeah, the, the pressures there were something that I'll, 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 never, I'll never see it ever again. Um, and yeah, that comes down to... Um, the way of they the way that they see and feel football it's not a game it's a it's a it's a mean it's a means to means to an end it's um it's a life it's a lifestyle there and, and i remember uh we had to win our last game to get promotion and as the bus were pulling we were pulling out of the training ground to go towards the airport uh, there were thousands of fans at the end of the driveway with flares rockets flags so we're going towards these fans and you can imagine I'm, I'm trying to get close to the window to have a look and say, wow, look at all this. And all the players and all the staff start closing the curtains on the bus. And I'm saying, no, no, what are you doing? Look at the fans, look at the fans. And they're saying, no, no, they're not here to to wish us good luck, I promise you. And yeah, um, the rockets, the flares and the flags and the banners are all talking about don't come home if you don't get promotion down in uh, down in Sao Paulo. Um, so yeah, we managed to go down there and we won the game got promotion i remember the party was on till sort of well it, it didn't stop until we went to the airport uh and we flew back to 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 rio and i was saying now there's going to be a party at the training ground now there's going to be a party i can't wait drove back to the ground back to the training ground got off the bus absolutely nobody there silence silence i remember saying to the staff do you want to go for a meal? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And they just sort of said no we've uh, we finished fourth with Vasco in Serie B you can't you can't finish fourth. It's nothing to celebrate. And I remember saying, yeah, but we've, I know I've only been here seven weeks, but you guys have been here all year trying to achieve this. Uh, you know, you've been away from your kids, away from your wives and your friends, spent giving your life to get promotion. Now we've got promotion and got the job done for me, at least go and have a meal or something. And they were like, no, we just need to go home and 
make sure it doesn't happen again. We can't come back to Serie B, which, yeah, that, that just tells you about the pressures of that club. That's fantastic insight too, Alex, just into kind of the pressures really working on the inside of a club, speaking of that collective relief at the end of the season. But although going in just on a temporary, albeit a temporary period, but, you know, one Lifford or pressure at that time of the season for the final seven to eight weeks, I mean, did that external pressure from the fans, from the board, you know, from the Brazil Football Society, you know, did that weigh into your workload on the pitch whatsoever? Or you would you have found it easy enough at the time to disassociate yourself from the external pressure? Uh, it's a good question. Um, subconsciously, possibly, possibly subconsciously. Um, but I mean, yeah, I'd come from, I went directly from working in the Premier League. So you can imagine the pressure there where, yeah, it's uh, the sort of certainly when, you know, there's you've conceded from a set piece and everybody knows you're the set piece coach. You know, you you're wide open to it from all angles, especially. But yeah, going across to Brazil, I think in a way it worked in our or certainly my favour because we had after the first three games, um, we 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 found success and I remember the fourth game was every set piece looked like. It was going to go in. Everything, everything came off that night, and from there, the fans were. Every time we got a free kick or a corner, the fans were making noises as though we'd already scored, and the players felt that. And I remember that the day after on the training ground for the recovery session, the players were wanting to talk about it, and the players were, "What have you got planned for next week? What have you? What have you? What are we going to do next week?" And when you get that sort of buy-in and 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 sort of belief in what we're doing, yeah. You, they do the work for you, you know. The the players start to see that it's a way that we can we can win these games because the games were tight, and we're getting through a lot of games just on emotion and just on belief in in we're a massive club. We've got to get up. We're a massive club. We've got to get up. A lot of it when when Jorginho came in, a lot of what he did was emotional connections and building strong relationships with players. Uh, he only came in three games before I did. So for him to come in and sort of implement and complete new identity or football philosophy, would have, it would have been too much in that short amount of time. So he came in and he was just trying to make players happy, give give a good feeling um, and a good sort of trajectory to what, what we were doing. So yeah, any set piece we got was was massive for us. And um, yeah, in the last in the last four games, it felt, it felt incredible. I remember in the second to last game, uh, we'd been working on a set piece through the week um, and after three minutes we got the corner and it worked and it came off um, perfectly after three minutes and I remember just the gaffer just turning around and he was like you've done it we're doing it we're doing it and uh, he's a religious guy so he was shouting all sorts of religious stuff to me as well but no it was it's just a good feeling and then the players see that and then they buy into it and um, Again, with that crowd as well, we used it to our we we definitely used it to our advantage because then every time we got a corner or free kick, the you could you could sort of smell something was going to happen, and I think the opposition felt that as well because we'd been creating and having so much success from set pieces. The opposition was starting to think, okay, here we go, here we go. So, no, yeah, I think you got to try and flip pressure and try and flip it and use it in your to your advantage. Santan. Evidently, with the role of a set-piece coach, the impact at times can be unquantifiable. Well, it can be massively quantifiable, but it can be an extreme impact. But your time is limited. So what would you say, especially in a high-pressure octane role, no matter where it be, Alex, what would be some of your key principles for being effective at utilising your time? Yeah, uh, certainly if you've got short time, I know some of the roles I've had, I've had five minutes a week. Um, and when that's been the case, I've just gone in and said, okay, we need to be defensively solid. Um, because as I said before, defensively, the principles and structure and system can be quite concrete. Um, of course, you can make slight alterations in, yeah, maybe, maybe in one game you have uh, one less zone, and maybe he's, he goes and helps the goalkeeper and buys some space for the goalkeeper. Maybe, maybe you, you don't go as tight when you're marking. Maybe you sort of have a, they call it the bus stop where they're all in a line and they're more blockers rather than man-oriented. Um, so, yeah, for me, I always say concrete, do the concrete stuff first. 
and build that. And it may be a three, four, even five or six week uh, structure where you're building that and then move on to, uh, it might be that long just on corners and then you might move on to free kicks. Um, and then the other side of it is, uh, and we've not mentioned it and it doesn't get mentioned a lot, substitutes. Now, when you can make so many substitutes at once, it can throw an, a complete wrecking ball to any attacking plans. Um, especially, so imagine you're going on as a substitute. I always say a player's probably got five to eight seconds, even I'm talking elite world-class internationals, they've got five to eight seconds of attention. Um, that includes the gaffer telling them where they're playing, what they're going to be doing. So if you can just grab them and tell them what they're going to be doing when they're defending corners, what they're going to be doing when they're defending free kicks, and then you control when we have attacking set pieces. So, for example, the last thing you want is they run on the pitch and they're defending a corner immediately and they're looking over to the bench and then that panics them. Then they that panic can create stress amongst the group. That's the last thing that you want. Um, so I think make sure you nail the concretes first and then, yeah, as I said, um, the attacking stuff can come later on. A lot of the times it's not been as you'd wish and a lot of the times I've been coaching attacking set pieces in the dressing room before the game because the team's just been announced. Um, so, yeah, as I, the players already going through their own sort of routine and schedule before the game, they've got their they've got their headphones on and I'll be saying, can I just grab you just for a second? I just want you to do this. But, yeah, for them to feel the trajectory, the timing, the angle, yeah, it's, it's almost impossible uh, if you're not out there on the grass spending time. But um, you do what you can, whether it's showing a video uh, but at least at least tell them where you want them to to start and where and more importantly where you want them to finish. What I'm fascinated to learn more about Alex is you know the planning and preparation because as you spoke to in some roles you've only had five ten minutes on a weekly basis, and obviously you know when your time is that limited it could bear you know possible disagreements with fellow coaching staff members and I was just wondering in that instance if there was ever a disagreement. How big a role would data at that stage play to your advantage then in deciding the context of that week's set piece? Listen, everything depends on the gaffer. Everything depends on the gaffer. Um, in the role I'm in currently, it's more of an advisory role. So I go in and I'll say, uh, the data says this, this and this. So maybe have you thought about having a different kind of profile in this area or maybe adding a zone or changing the positioning of the zone or whatever. You can show them data, then you can show them how it's been done with success at other clubs. But at the end, you can only give the information. And if the gaffer or set piece coach or whoever it may be doesn't want to go with it, then then you have to you have to go with what they what they want to do. Um, otherwise when I've been in clubs, yeah, I've been in discussions with managers and they've said I remember one, I'll not say what club or coach, but I remember we got on to about second and third and fourth phase and defending and they were saying, all right, but when can we then switch to complete man-to-man? -man? Um, and it ended up in quite a debate where well, I don't want to because I personally, I don't think we have the personnel. Um, when you go man-to-man, -man, you lose control completely. Um, they decide where you go, so you don't have any control over what area is defending. Um but you have to fight your case. And again, data is a tool. Um, and I've said it before, it's a conversation starter, but certainly we can use it to back our arguments. And when the data says, if we do this well in this area with these players, then yeah, let's uh, we've got to use it as much as we can. And it's fascinating to kind of put, you know, to put an end to the Vasco da Gama story because, you know, it just didn't end there, you know, going back to the hotel after that promotion push you know, when it was achieved, uh, let alone you were on a flight the next day back to England before starting a new role at promotion pushing Genoa at the time. So it's just fascinating to me how you're able to kind of leave one context and then seemingly go into the other. But obviously, as you spoke about there so eruditely, you know, necessitates at the end of the day what the gapper wants and, you know, getting to know your players. So I'm just fascinated to know, you know, after the high of experiencing promotion with Vasco da Gama in Brazil, how did you settle and compose yourself before readying, readying yourself, albeit in the space of 48 hours, to make that quantum leap to Genoa and Italy? Yeah, I remember speaking to my, my sporting director of the group and saying, can I have a week? Can I have two weeks? Because I'd not seen my family, I'd not seen my missus. And uh, I was saying, I can't tell you the stress of... Yeah, listen, 
my hotel was on front of the beach and it was 30 degrees every day, but I didn't see any of that. Uh, the most I did was I went for a run in the morning down the beach, but apart from that, I didn't, I could have been anywhere doing that job. It didn't, didn't matter that I was in Rio de Janeiro, you know, I was, uh, I was working all day, every day. And then, then in Brazil, you travel and there's a game and, and there seems to be two games a week, three games a week sometimes. And then they do the, um, what they call the concentration. So you stay in a hotel for three or four nights before a game. Um, so yeah, there was all that. And, and, and then, yeah, so I went from that, uh, came back and they said, no, Jenna, we're under pressure. They've, uh, they've not won in the last three. The gaffer needs help. So yeah, so I got down, put down my, uh, put down my summer clothes, picked up all my winter coats, got another flight, went to Italy um in november and yeah they were under real pressure the gaffer there they they needed wins uh unfortunately and i take responsibility but we we couldn't help him enough and uh, he ended up losing his job and um yeah it's a completely different environment to walk into even results alone promotion aside uh going from brazil to italy yeah there's there couldn't be two more contrasting cultures or environments um But yeah, I remember going in there and they changed the manager after 10 days and, and Gilardino came in and um, yeah, he, he was about uh, order and a lot of the coaching is automisms and it's a similar to coaching philosophy and coaching style to Antonio Conte, I always think, because he speaks about if the ball arrives to this zone, this pass needs to be played and the strikers need to make these movements and the midfielders need to drop or, or advance or whatever it may be. depending on the zone, um, which again, that was something com the complete opposite to to Brazil and how they played, where there's more freedom and more uh, relationism aspects and concepts. Um, so yeah, completely different, completely different to walk into. But again, listen, Gilla came in and found a way to win. We were winning games 1-0, 2-1, just picking points up, picking points up. And he gained momentum and... Um, I have to give a shout out because the set piece statistics were good there because we had uh, the kid who was just gone to Tottenham, Radu Dragosin. And listen, I remember the first month we were struggling. We the, we were getting the deliveries right, but the, the runs were wrong or the block wasn't coming off or the, time, the timing was wrong. And then the next couple of games, everything else was right, but the delivery had never arrived to the right zone. And... Uh, I remember alongside my, my colleague, a German colleague there, we ended up working a lot with Radu and he was doing individual stuff after training, just work. And we used the the slinger, the I think it's called a ball slinger, what the goalkeepers use where it's getting fired out of a machine. And it was my colleague's idea. Um, and we had it lined up just so the cross was consistent and coming in and we we're just working on his running and his timing and his technique and his technique and his technique. And the other players were lined up behind the goal. And obviously you can imagine they're joking and making making fun. Uh, and this was on a Friday that night. We went went and travelled down, I can't remember where we played, Modena, I think it was. Um, two minutes into the game, first corner, it comes in, boom, bullet header into the top corner. Uh, the day after we had a recovery session. Listen, it's not because of the machine and it's not because of the coaching or anything. It just so happened. But the next day, The next day, he came in alongside three other players saying, what's next week? What are we doing next week? Can we work on this? I've seen this other corner that uh, Arsenal did last, and it just started to grow. And then the next game, we scored two. And then the week after, yep. and it's similar to Vasco, they start, it's got to be a buy-in and a belief, but they don't get that without success. You just need one goal, one goal. Um, and yeah, it comes. And, and, and with that, you know, players... Not to be, not to speak out of turn, but players like to score goals because yeah, there's there's financial gain at times, and then obviously you know if you're a if you're a central defender who brings goals from set pieces, then yeah, your price tag goes up and your career your career can be a lot more illustrious, you know. So yeah, it's a, it's something that we ended up we ended up working on quite a lot, and um, we got the success, and it, it ended up playing a massive part in promotion again. No, and it's amazing with all these global influences, education and job-wise. It's quite ironic now, you know, that you have such a global-facing position with clubs all over the world and various different continents in your portfolio. And it's something what we spoke about now, 
a few weeks ago in terms of football for us, well, football for myself has been, you know, such a joy to watch, I would say, in the last few years more than most in terms of you see how many unique expressions and kind of game style that are coming across. And particularly this season too, in terms of football has been ever so much a question of attacking through time as opposed to space, you know, and for me, it's those kind of, you look at game inside principles, position, moment, direction, speed, you know, the moment and speed, the decision as to when to attack now, Alex, it's more prominent in the game than ever. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we covered it the other week. I remember we were speaking about Arteta and Pep and how Pep's probably the most defensive coach in the world. Is that because he wants more control when he's attacking, possibly, because they'll roll into one? Um, I know I've spoken about it previously, but as far as breaking the game down into into phases, I don't think it's I don't think it, it's um it's not it's not the way I, I see or feel the game anyway. It's certainly more about uh one continuous moment and you know the way you attack results in how you defend and the way you defend results in how you attack you know if um yeah imagine we're we're attacking and, and we go the left back plays a long diagonal pass across to the, the right midfielder and then there's eight, 80 meters between them and then the right midfielder ends up losing possession and then yeah you end up with big distances and yeah that's that's when you can't you can't really put it down to okay but we want to attack like this but when we defend we want to look like this it can't it can't work and again I've worked at clubs where they use the specialized coaching and yeah it's who coaches what when because I remember we'd do there'd be an in-possession coach working on okay in here we're trying to work at 3v2 overload here and then once the ball goes from out to in we get the underlap who goes through and he's going to get the ball in there okay good but then the defensive coach will be working on We'd be in a in a in a low block or more of a mid to low block, and and I was thinking, so how is this going to go together and work together when the distances are completely different in the different moments? And yeah, we ended up just getting possession, and because we were in a low block when we were defending, how does that look when 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 we regain possession? We have we wanted to try and get the ball forward a lot quicker than we ended up, uh, of rather than what we anticipated in the beginning and yeah, it just ends up who coaches what, when. Um, so yeah, it's not really something I subscribe to. Um, certainly your set pieces are aside from that, you know, it's, it's certainly an area where you can have a, I think set pieces are a game within the game. Um, but yeah, aside from that, it's uh, putting specialized moments and specialized coaches in different areas because you would, yeah. And this leans again into relationism and positionalism and yeah you want to overload say you want to overload and attack one area on one side but when you're overload when you overload one space that means you're underloaded in another space so you need to sort of choose wisely so again we sp and I spoke about it, uh, last week with regards to the Fluminense against City game and uh, when Marcelo switches play and they lose it and it's Nathan Ake a center central defender curling one onto the post from from 30 yards when City follow up and score. And they say that the the remedy or 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 how to counter that would be a player positioned or occupying a diagonal space behind the ball. But then again, that that's that's certainly closer to positionalism. So yeah, with regards to the phases and the spaces and relationism and positionalism, I'm not I tried not to go too far into this goes into this box with this label on this shelf. It's certainly it's one moment and the more we can control for me, again, that's because of my education, but I find the beauty of football in control. And that's why I love to watch Guardiola teams, De Zerbi teams, Arteta teams, Emery teams, uh, yeah, Michelle teams as well. And, and Xabi Alonso now, a lot of it is about we have control of the ball, of spaces. And yeah, it's, uh, that's the way I see and feel, feel football. It's amazing you speak of having control. And for me, I would echo something similar. However, there's there's an interesting trend, I would say, this season too, just watching so extensively that it's the arrival points in football, not only the arrival points in football, but who's arriving that is providing the kind of shock to opponents. And seeing the game as one phase, one living organism, it's been interesting to see the success of Jude Bellingham, you know, in the La Liga this season, who haven't had to kind of, you know, deal with a six or an eight arriving into those 
you know, key arrival zones, I would say, having, not having to deal with them before. Michelle's Girona, where you have the left-back Miguel Gutierrez, who's bombing on past the last defensive line so often. Or, in fact, Vincenzo Italiano's Fiorentina this season, where you're seeing Gonzalo Corta, the centre-back, ending up on the last line at times. So, for me, it's fascinating to see that kind of change and adapt. For me, Alex, what I'm fascinated to therefore kind of investigate is to change the player profiles which this impact may have in the game going forward. Yeah, massively. And you touched on it there. Um, one player change, one changing one player can 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 take a wrecking ball to the system, or it can it can make the system and structure look completely different. Even if it's changing, you know, for example, you build up in a three-two, but then you change the the two rounds, so there's a right footer on one side and a left footer on the other side, or or both left footers. It, it, it's completely different. I remember. I think it was 2018 World Cup, was it? Yeah, and Maguire played on the left of the back three for England, and because he was wanting to pass from out to in, the attacking trajectory and angles were so completely different. Um, but then something else that you spoke on there, and I think this is something that it fascinates me, and I said it before, it's cliche to... to speak about City and Guardiola all the time, but something that he speaks about a lot and 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 and, and you said it actually the other the other day when we spoke is they are changing and finding a different way to win, not only season to season, months to month, but game to game. And imagine they've got two games a week. They look different in every game. But if you change the profile of player, for example, if Foden comes off for silver, it's completely different. Foden wants to play forward quicker. He wants to be more vertical. Um, De Bruyne coming on into the other half space that changes everything because he's somebody who wants to drive he wants to attack spaces whereas Bernardo or last year we could say Gundogan was more they can be more conservative and take care of the ball rather than attack too quickly um, but again that leans leans towards the, um, the, the, the phases and how you look again so they know if and it's something that I think if uh, if Grealish plays or Doku plays, the City look completely different um, defensively. I know when Grealish plays, they, they they tend to try and invert the left fullback a lot more because they know Grealish is not going to defend as well. Again with Doku, he's somebody, and I know I saw a clip the other day where Pep was was killing him for not defending, and uh, I think he started walking for a couple of seconds, and Guardiola was uh, screaming at him from the touchline. So. One player, the way they defend, the way they attack, the way they 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 want to move inside, or they want to, for example, Doku's a lot more uh, vertical to Grealish. So if Grealish wants to get it and comes inside, then it's probably better to play a left-footed fullback who can overlap around the outside, and vice versa for Doku. Um, if he's more vertical and wants to go down the line and cross it, then it's probably better to have an inverted fullback behind him. So yeah, the profile of one player can change how a system looks but again this is why I think in the future it's going to be difficult to talk 4-4-2-4-3-3-4-2-3-1 when the spaces are beside players and it's not really between lines anymore it's more can we start to think horizontally as well as vertically so I think was it Renny Marik we spoke about it the other week I think he said he's thinking about formations maybe in the future rather than thinking vertically when we say 4-3-3 maybe we're going to start thinking about can we go horizontally across the pitch? So we're going to have two on the left, four centrally, and then two, for example. Um, so for me, yeah, one player profile change can 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 alter everything. And actually, to 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 progress on that more is when I was in Italy and and Giladino came in again with the automism training and the automism philosophy and methodology. Uh, there were players there who were in positions where it probably suited them to do other things. It probably suited him to receive it on the left foot on a half turn and then drive forward. Some of the players would be better receiving it on the right foot and probably facing their own goal to attract a defender from behind and then bounce it and attack the space behind just because they're better sprinters without the ball. It's uh, it's something that's, that's, that's massive and we discussed it a lot there in Genoa, but in the end, we got the job done. You know, it's... Uh, we used it to our advantage and the players used it in Serie B, knowing that with this system, with this philosophy, we're a step ahead of the opposition. We know where the ball is going to be. So from the moment we take a goal kick, we know if the goalkeeper picks a pass to his right, 
we, we know where the next pass is going and the next three passes are going to be. And that's a massive advantage to have if you've got players who are clever enough to blow it, to know it. But it did end up like a um, like a dance routine at times, um, which was really interesting to be around and really interesting to to study. Um, but yeah, some players, like I said, coming from, I can't imagine that happening in Brazil with Brazilian players, them having to learn a dance routine uh, when there's a ball on the pitch rather than, you know, uh, dancing when they've got the ball. It's, it's completely different. It's completely different dancing when a dance routine, making the ball do the dance rather than when you've got the ball, you're the dancer, let's say. So, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Consequently, it's going to be really intriguing to see as to what provocations this has on training methodologies going forward and will they become more global as a result? Who knows? But, I mean, Alex, as someone who studies the game extensively, evidently, you know, it supercharged your path to where you are today. What are you studying at the moment outside from your day-to-day -day role, be it football or otherwise, that really excites you about the future development of the game? Yeah, I think it's important that you try you try and stay up to date with everything that's going on. And of course, there's all tactical trends. There's all, uh, like you've mentioned, so many teams there, Bologna, uh, Fiorentina, there's so many different trends going on. So, yeah, I think if you can open your mind is, and open your eyes to the different styles, because in the end, I'm not sure what percentage of players the Premier League is. I'm not sure what percentage of coaches the Premier League are English um, and the percentage of players that are English. So, I know it's not high, which makes me, you know, you then there's 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 football that exists outside England. So I think a lot of a lot of people need to understand that yeah, things aren't born here and things don't end here. It's a lot of the times things are brought in here from from around the world. So for me, I'll try and watch as much as I can. Be it Italy. Um, obviously, I'm still involved with Genoa there, so I'm watching their game, so I get to see a lot of top football there. Um, and I, I obviously watch a lot of Spanish football and German as well because. Hertha Berlin are actually in the group as well. So there's some really interesting stuff going on, even in Bundesliga 2 in Germany. There's some interesting uh, styles and, and some unique ideologies of football there. Uh, but for me, in, in general, the data side and the analytical side is is they've got to try and find a way to fall hand in hand. Um, we... We need to find a place where we accept the data because I, I speak to a lot of coaches and a lot of a lot of ex-players who are becoming coaches. And as soon as data comes up, they start to freeze up a little bit and think, what are these numbers? What do you mean? Can't we just talk about football? Isn't this not football? But listen, this morning I was on the phone to an agent talking and he, he's asked me about a player and we ended up, he was talking about data to me. That's an agent. So that's that's the way the game's going. That's the way... The world's going, if whether we like it or not, that's the way it's going. The kids are going to be savvy on with data. Um, I think we've got to find a way to, certainly if we're working in academies and youth football, find a way to, to learn with the kids. So whether that be, I don't know, it could be give a kid homework to analyse himself on his iPad so he's not just sat at home on his iPad playing whatever game he plays. And I don't know anymore what, what the kids are playing, but... Uh, whatever he's doing on his iPad, can we say actually just watch this ten minute clip, and I want you to draw, draw out and analyze and let me know what you think. I don't know if we've got the software or data or whatever we can for that, um, but we've got to find a way to um, to grow with it and move with it because it's happening. But whether we like it or not, there's going to be more technology. There's going to be more data, um, and as coaches, it's yeah, it's not it's not normal for us from our generation. I'll go back to the start with. When I started watching and then playing and then kicking a ball against the wall after Euro 96, the last thing I was thinking about were computers and data, but that's the way the game's going and we've got to grow with it and use it to our to our advantage. Absolutely fascinating. Alex, I've really enjoyed this chat. It's been very therapeutic. In fact, to speak football with you from all four corners of the globe for the past hour or so, um, as is close in tradition at the end of the show, Alex, what would be your one key bit of advice for those aspiring coaches listening to you speak today who wish to thread a similar path. Yeah, similar to what I've just just said there as well. I'll touch on it. You've got to move with the times. You've got to move with it because if not, you'll be left behind us. So the next generation of coaches are really brave. You know, you're looking at the young, and, and 
even in England now, you look at the young coaches, they're, they're so brave with what they want to do. And yeah, they say it's risky the way they want to play. But for me, the biggest risk is not taking a risk at all. Um, and I think that 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 comes with growing and that comes with, with your own self-development. Um, another one is follow your own path. Don't worry about what's going on behind you. Don't worry about what's going on beside you. Uh, that could be metaphorically or literally. Don't if if you're coaching on the pitch next to somebody else, don't worry what they're doing there. That's another coach and another group, another group of players. You do what's right for you and your players. Um, whether it's your 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 career and your own ambitions and aspirations, just look forwards and chase upwards. I think it's something that um, Alex Ferguson. Um, I think it was on his documentary. He was saying. A, a tip to what he always used to do or a key to what he always used to do was chase upwards. So even when they were 5, 10, 15 points clear of Liverpool in the league with yeah, a month left and it was all but wrapped up, he used to say, yeah, but Liverpool have won this many titles. We've not won as many titles as Liverpool, so we need this one. We need this one. And then the next year he'd find, okay, but then the Champions League, we've not won, won as many as Liverpool. We've not won as many as Real Madrid or whatever. Always find a way to keep chasing upwards and don't worry about what's going on beside you. Um, and then last one, coach, 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 coach as much as you can. Um, there's a lesson in every session from every player, be it an under, an under six who's just starting out, will teach you something about yourself and how you need to approach different scenarios or be it a Premier League player who who you're working with in an individual session or or as a group or as a, or as a group session or a video your session whatever it may be coach as much as you can because that's where you're going to develop absolutely fantastic alex clapham thank you so much for joining me today on the show thank you so much for having me con it's been a pleasure